The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Well, I hope you're open in your uh, Bibles, on your iPad, your phone, and otherwise, um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, and um, this is a passage of Scripture that I've taught many times, and, and uh, I like one phrase in it. That's why I've called the sermon, Swallowed Up by Life. It's one of my favorite statements of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man, uh, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. He, he hated Christians. He was like a religious terrorist. He had reached the top of his game. He was doing wonderfully financially. He was doing wonderfully in every other way. And he was always on the goal. And his, he was zealous for God. He thought that that zealousness was the right kind of zealousness. He didn't realize that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who he supposedly was waiting for. But the last thing he was thinking of was death, except the death of others. But he wasn't thinking about his own death. I read some statistics that I absolutely don't believe or, not, or, or I don't know how anybody could know this. But they said that almost everybody thinks about death almost every day or tries not to think about death <laughs> almost every day. That's really why I like this passage. So we're, gonna, we're calling the sermon Swallowed Up by Life, and we're going to see a totally transformed Paul when you know what he was like before and see what he's like now at this point, and wait till you hear the next sermon and the next one after that, and see some of the things he's gone through, uh, then uh, you'll really realize how real it was to him, how important it was to him, and how he desired, literally desired, that step over of death. And so that's why I, I like the phrase, swallowed up by life. And we're going to, uh, here's what we're going to cover. What happens when I die? We all want to know that. We've studied that many times in our studies. Uh, or will I have a new body in heaven? And what will my new body look like? And we've studied all those things. Now, the Bible does not give us a detailed description of heaven. It does give us enough information for us to desire heaven, but not enough information to draw a detailed picture of heaven. To understand this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we must be reminded of what we learned last time, and since it's been a few weeks since uh, I've been teaching through the Corinthian letter, uh, I'm going to I put it on the screen, but you can just turn back to it if you want, and most of you were here, so it'll be, uh, it won't be new news to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. We have to understand these next few verses to understand these next 10 verses. So here's what it says. Paul starts off by saying, it is written, I believed, 
therefore I have spoken. Now, I have to stop there because that's an Old Testament statement from the Psalms, in two different Psalms, as a matter of fact. And the reason that I want to point it out, as I often do, is that it's very important we don't unlink ourselves from the Old Testament because Paul thought from an Old Testament point of view, and that's how he taught his New Testament letters. So we need to understand the Old Testament. So he's saying uh, here, it is written in the Hebrew Scriptures, I believe, therefore I have spoken, or I believe by faith is another way of saying it, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit, Paul says, that same spirit of faith, we also believe, we. Now, who's we? We is Paul and the Corinthians. He's writing to the people in Corinth and us today. So he's talking to us. So he says, with that same spirit of faith, we here also believe, therefore speak because we know. Now, you, you've been here any length of time, you, you know I can't, you know that I can't go past the word no <laughs> without stopping because that's unique to Christianity. We don't think so. We don't hope so. We don't say, I hope this is the truth, but I'm not sure. No, we know that the one who raised the Lord, whose name is Jesus, from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, our benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We don't get discouraged about this. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. And that's true. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Now, you'll remember this line if you were here. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of those troubles. And you know what I'm going to say next. The good thing about our troubles is they don't last long. They cannot last longer than we're alive. That's it. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's pointing to heaven. In the New Living Translation, verse 18 from the previous passage reads, so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen for the things we see now Will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. So the question is, what was Paul gazing at that is unseen? Paul's gaze included his recognition that his life was coming to an end and that his future was heaven, which included an eternal body minus all the difficulties regarding this temporal body. This was causing Paul to intensify his commitment to Jesus as a priority above anything he could claim for himself. I truly don't understand how anyone can live life with peace unless they, unless they found a way to never think about death. 
You know, when I was an atheist, I was really young. You know, I was going to live. I, I remember thinking, I'm probably going to live until the 2020s, which is forever. <laughs> and, and so I lived in denial of death. So you would either have to be totally deceived or simply refuse to acknowledge the inevitable. It was a, a funeral at the VA cemetery some time ago. The bugler had played taps. The flag had been folded and given to the appropriate family member. And then I started my comments with a quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, which reads, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. And then I went on. When the service was over, the funeral director asked if he could talk to me. I'd never worked with this funeral director before. I didn't know him. He asked me where I got the quote about parties and death. I thought he was not going to be happy about it. I explained the passage to him, and he said that he would be using it often as he talked to the living who were dealing with death firsthand. Today, there are a growing number of books practically promising that death can be eliminated. Now, I've read several such books. You have? Why? Because I wanted a sermon illustration. <laughs> but I have. I've read, some, uh, I've read several of these books. And I've been amazed at the naivete of the writers who are usually brilliant men and women who certainly would not agree that we won't find a way to live forever in our temporal, medicated, exercised, prioritized human bodies. Uh, Joseph Bailey, now at the Lord, really understood death. He had three children of his seven die in the first 18 years, one just after birth, one a few, few years, and one at 18. And he wrote a lot of books and really talked well. He knew how to talk about death. But he also knew how to talk about the fact that there are people who think that we're going to sort of find a way to live forever now. And so this is a quote from him. He says, this frustrates us, death, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. Electrocentralograms. <laughs> may replace a mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds, but death continues to confront us with its blank wall. That's from his book, The Last Thing We Talk About, which is all of his books are worth uh, reading. As, as I said, he's no stranger to death, losing his three children. Here's a, a quote from the book. In light of the promises that await us, it is a mystery that we Christians go to the medical extremes that we do to hang on to life. I mean, that's a powerful statement. That's what Paul is saying here. This is what the whole thing is about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Look in your Bibles. Paul says, For we know that if... The earthly tent we live in is destroyed. Now, for we know that if, now it's if, it is going to be destroyed. So, for we know that if 
as is the case, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. That's our bodies. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, but, but built by God himself. So Paul is saying that whether he dies a so-called natural death or is executed as a martyr, he'll receive an eternal body. His hope was, our hope is, that we will be alive when the final trumpet sounds and the angel shouts and the dead in Christ rise first and all that. But if not, there's no disadvantage, none at all. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us the reason. It's because our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await. Think about that for a minute. Do we? Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord, whose name is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform, that's the word for metamorphosis, our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, Paul was a tent maker, and he fully understood the temporality of tents. Tents can be taken down rather quickly or even destroyed in a sandstorm or a strong wind. Tents are not permanent structures, but we can take them down and you can put them up again. So Paul contrasts his tent body, his temporal body, with what he will experience immediately following his imminent death. The new tent will be a permanent building which God builds and will never be taken down. This is what Paul was looking forward to. He's not longing for death, but for transformation into his resurrection body. You remember our study in 1 Corinthians 15? It hasn't been that long ago, where we learned that our new body will be the same as our old body, but different. Do you remember the car illustration? I used to have a 1964 convertible, uh, special Pontiac convertible. It was awesome, you know. And, uh, and now I have a 2000 and something Hyundai. It's exactly the same as a 64, but different. And, and that's sort of a, a, a good picture of our bodies. Uh, the old car that I had isn't around anymore. The new car will last longer, but not forever. But here's a picture of the old body and the new body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. You'll remember this if you were here. The body that is sown, they're farmers, so they're thinking of sowing. When you, in other words, the body that is buried in the grave is perishable, and it's raised imperishable. So he, here, here's what he, how he says it. Our present bodies are perishable, dishonorable, and weak. That's just the truth about it. And our new bodies are imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. And so he just puts that together in this fabulous uh, scripture. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. You see, Paul is not concerned about his present body being destroyed. 
He's looking forward to the eternal future. That is why he lives life the way he does. Now look at verse 2. Look in your scripture. Meanwhile, in the meantime, we groan. Actually, one Bible translates it, we grow weary. We groan. Uh, the creation groans. We groan. So meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It reads, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. These verses were spoken by Paul to assure us of our future, glorious, eternal bodies. Look at verse 4. For while we are in this tent, this is my tent, <laughs> we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be, and this is where I got the sentence, and I love this, swallowed up by life, swallowed up by life. Alexander McLaren, in his sermon of 130 or 40 years ago, uh, says here, the old saying has it, here is but a step between me and death. It should be there is but a step between me and death. The truth is, there is but a step between me and life. That's why Paul was so excited. He really believed that. Paul desired heaven over his home on earth, not only because he had experienced persecution physically, but because he wanted to be where Jesus is. Plus, Paul fully believed in personal resurrection and a new body. Fully believed in it. This was not understood very well <clears throat> by the culture of the day, even the Jewish culture of the day. There's an incident in John chapter 2. It's right around Passover time, so there's huge crowds around the temple. Huge crowds. And Jesus starts walking around the temple, and he sees people selling cows and goats and birds and, and money changers and all of this, and he puts together this whip, and he goes through the temple in a rage and drives everybody out of the temple area, and turns over the, the, the tables. All of the important Jewish leaders are just in shock, and the Jewish people are in shock. This is Passover time. And uh, he starts yelling at them, saying, you know, look at what you're doing. You're, this is to be a house of prayer, he says, not a house of commerce. And then they come to him, and they asked him. They said, you know, give us a sign. How do you, what authority have you got to do this? He'd already told them that he was God, that he was the Messiah, all of that stuff. We studied all that in the past. But they said, give us a sign that you have the authority to do this. I love the way he answered. He said in chapter 2, verse 19 of John, destroy this temple. Just imagine him standing there. Destroy this temple. I think he probably went like this. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Of course, they didn't get it. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of John, this is the explanation, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, these disciples believed because of the resurrection and because of prophecy in the Old Testament because Jesus had a real body that they could touch and feel and recognize. Paul is not talking here of the moaning or groaning, the suffering of aging or death. Paul is groaning and and burden, his burden was due to a, de- a desire to receive his new covering, his permanent residence. That's why he was groaning. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the writings of Paul again, and we, we believers also groan. Before that, he talked about the creation groans. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Now, we all have many experiences in life that kind of emulate that. Think about how you feel a few days before heading off on a dream vacation. A few years ago, uh, Val and I, along with another friend and their children, vacationed in Sedona, Arizona. Uh, We would be staying in a beautiful place that Val and I have been to often. I really wanted to show our friends this vacation paradise. The final week before we left, I found it almost impossible to concentrate on my work. All I could think of was the new environment, the relaxation, the great Starbucks nearby, the ice cream parlor, the mountain biking, the beautiful sunrises. It could be said I groaned and was burdened to be closed in the Sedona Resort rather than our Bradenton home. That's the picture. Now, I know this is a silly illustration, but can we not identify with Paul here? Have we been so taken in by the world that we would rather prefer to just have a better here? Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That's what my life's all about. And to die is gain. The Living Bible says to die is better yet. If I am going to go on living in the body, in this body, This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So am I looking forward to heaven? Really? Heaven is where Jesus is. And that should be the overriding reason we want to go there. That's why Paul also wrote... In his most joyful letter, Philippians is the most joyful letter he ever wrote, and he wrote it from a prison. And he wrote these words, What is more, I consider everything a loss, and he had accomplished a lot, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that's the Messiah, Jesus, that's the Savior, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. 
And then a little later he writes, I want to know Christ. Now this is this know here, it's a know of relationship. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Now we'll think about that for a minute. He wants to participate in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, which is really a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But, but, but have you ever thought of suffering the way Paul did as, as a gift from God? You see it all through his writings. I recently reread um, Pastor Swindoll's book called Clinging to Hope. It's a great book. Uh, Swindoll, I, he, he's only written 90 books, so, but it's a, uh, all of his books are amazing. He wrote it about 15 years ago. And he's still ministering effectively at 89 years of age in his megachurch. Here's a quote from the book. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. If it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. Powerful quote. If we have no suffering at all in life, our desire for heaven diminishes. If we're willing to serve the Lord using our spiritual gifts, using our resources, using our influence, I can guarantee suffering at a sufficient level that you'll be looking forward to heaven with joy. Uh, Paul, near the end of his life, wrote to his protege, Timothy, I call him Pastor Timothy, and he's writing in 2 Timothy 3.12, Timothy, tell all the congregation this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. You know, I've overcome the world, so don't worry about it, but you will have troubles. Try being a godly politician and see if you don't suffer. Try living for Christ in the office and see if you don't discover an adversary. <coughs> Try becoming involved in end-of-the-earth missions and the devil will go to work. All these things will cause us to start groaning for our new body and for the real presence of Jesus in heaven. You see, heaven is the place where I will be with Jesus for all eternity. The Scott Halfman disturbed by the jokes we make about heaven, writes this, our jokes about heaven being filled with our greatest pleasure on earth, such as heaven is the great golf course in the sky, or when I get to heaven, I'm going to eat all the pizza I can without worrying about my cholesterol. 
So he goes on to say, our jokes about heaven being fulfilled with our greatest pleasure on earth simply show how blind we are to the reality that it is the Lord himself who makes heaven our rightful home and that it is the same Lord who will welcome us there. To make the central focus of heaven anything or anyone beside God himself is ludicrous. To add something to God as heaven's pleasure is idolatrous. <clears throat> there were some teachers in Paul's day who said the resurrection had already taken place and there was no future bodily resurrection. Now, Paul was not looking to live an endless life in this world and in his tent body. He was looking forward, groaning about folding his temporal tent and receiving his permanent home. And in verse 4 now, look at your scripture again. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal, I love this, may be swallowed up by life. That's it again. When I became a Christian, there were several best-selling small books about the crucified life. They were all good. It was always described as a daily dying to self. Paul saw this life as a life of daily dying to self. Self is the enemy. But even more important, Paul recognized that we are all actually dying. To die was to receive eternal life in all of its marvelous fullness. Our mortal life is swallowed up by immortal life. So as we are transformed inwardly day by day and as we are dying outwardly day by day, we are ultimately being prepared to receive from God our heavenly dwelling. Heaven is often described as a great banquet, even in the Old Testament. Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah 25, uh, writes this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that should remind us right away of a verse that I use at almost every memorial service, Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now, verse 5. Now... The one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, the word guarantee here uh, is pronounced erebon in the Greek language. It means a pledge or a deposit that guarantees what is to come. Real estate people know about that. In modern Greek, it is the word used for engagement ring. And in Paul's culture, as most of you know, to be engaged or pledged to be married was just as binding as being married. God made us for eternity and saved us for eternity. And the reason we know that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
And the best, quote, proof text for that that we've taught many times here is Ephesians chapter 1, two verses, 13 and 14, on the screen. And it says, and you also were included in Christ, talking to Christians, when you heard the word of truth, we need the word of God to be saved, the gospel of your salvation, that's the good news about Jesus, when you believed, and we have to believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is an Erebon, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And then it's just like he, just to the praise of his glory. We're, when we're saved, we're saved for forever. The second Corinthians chapter one, we've already studied this just recently. Uh, verse 21, 22, now it is God who makes both us and you, he's talking to the Corinthians and talking to us, stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as an Erebon, a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. But now, far more than guaranteeing our heavenly inheritance, we also see it guarantees we'll never be unclothed. Look at verse 6. Therefore... We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. There are only three places we can be, earth, heaven, or hell. That's it. And again, notice that heaven is about the Lord. It's not just about being reunited with our loved ones. That's great. It is not the so-called streets of gold or the awesome worship of Revelation 4 and 5. Heaven is being with Jesus, fully clothed with our new, powerful, spiritual, immortal, recognizable bodies. And it is clear that Paul's preference was to be with the Lord. And not just because he was having a rough life here, nothing this earth could offer would have lessened Paul's desire to be home in heaven. Verse 7 says, for or because we live by faith, not by sight. This is the reason for all of this. This is the ultimate reason that we can be of the same mindset as the Apostle Paul, because we live by faith, by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, here is, here is how... All this should impact our lives, impact our lives. So take a look at um, verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. That's our goal. Biblically, there is no separation between doctrine and behavior. If the doctrine is true and we believe it, the behavior must follow. That's why the book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. And if we have faith, then we have works. We are saved onto good works that prove we have faith. And we will be judged and rewarded for our faithfulness concerning those works that God does through us. This is quite amazing. I mean, it just is amazing. Ephesians 2 8, 9, and 10. Uh, verse 10 is an orphan verse. I learned that from Chuck Swindoll. Nobody knows verse 10 because we all have memorized uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which reads, For it is by grace 
you have been saved. Grace, unmerited favor, you don't deserve it. Through faith, you have to have faith. And even the faith is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We just say, look at what I did. I became a Christian, and I did this, and I did that. No, no. God is the one that makes you a Christian. You just accepted it. But now verse 10 is really amazing. For we are God's handiwork, his handiwork, his masterpiece, some Bibles say, created in Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus, the Savior, to do good works. Now listen to this. We're saved to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. God has, truly does have a plan for our life. And we're all able to fulfill that plan because the Holy Spirit is in us and God's going to do it through us. All we have to do is submit to him. And then he's going to reward us for what he did through us. That's amazing. So verse 9 tells us that our goal should be to please Jesus. I would say in agreement with a particular commentator that our goal should be to put a smile on his face to go along with the joy we find in his acceptance. I often quote C.S. Lewis, as you know. Um, this is a, one of his top three quotes, so many of you have heard it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what, it, what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Even the little we know of heaven is greater than the best the world can possibly offer. But Paul adds a, a, another reason for his eagerness to win Christ's approval. It's the last verse for this morning, verse 10. And it reads this way. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us. A lot of Christians never think about that. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done, that's rewards, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're not earning salvation. This is all about faithfulness. Now, this is a very real picture in Paul's day. The local Bema seat, Bema just means judgment, the judgment seat in Corinth and all the other towns was in the main town square. Justice was administered. Judgment was proclaimed publicly and not in a private courtroom. So this picture Paul paints was very familiar to everyone reading this or having this read to them originally. Our guaranteed destiny is to be in heaven with Christ embodied in our permanent state rather than our tent-like existence. But we will all be judged and rewarded. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we've studied this pretty recently, 
verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of salvation, using, we're already saved now, and we build a foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, uh, they're, they, they don't burn up and they're, they're not going anyplace. And then, then there's a contrast, wood, hay, or straw. I remember when I first memorized it in an older version, wood, hay, or stubble. Uh, those things can just be gone like that. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, that means the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, I don't ever want my name on the part of the verse that says, but only as one escaping through the flames. Oh, I'm sure I'll suffer some loss, but with God's help, I will do the works that he has prepared for me to do that prove my faith is genuine. We Americans in particular have been deceived by our ability to fulfill our wants above our needs. No matter how much we have, we always want more. It's called greed, and in the Bible, greed is called idolatry. When we realize no material item or temporal pleasure or powerful position ultimately or permanently satisfies, then we understand what Jesus meant when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, meaning that's what we want more than anything else, for they will be satisfied. And God will take care of all the rest. Seek first the kingdom of uh, heaven and and all these things, he says in the sermon, will be added to you. What things? What you wear, what you need to survive, everything you need, God will take care of. If fulfilling our needs and wants, if that takes priority, then we will always come up short regardless of how many needs or wants are fulfilled. But if pleasing God takes priority... He will see we have more than we could ever need or want. Our desires will be fulfilled, and our longing for eternity will be magnified. John MacArthur finishes his sermon on this with this statement. Christians should not fear death. They should long to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That does not mean, of course, that they are to be foolishly reckless or careless with their lives, their bodies belong to God. But an obsessive concern for one's physical well-being or a morbid fear of death is inconsistent with the Christian perspective. Believers should long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for a drink, like a poor man longs for a payday, and like a soldier longs for peace. Hope and courage in facing death is the last opportunity for Christians to exhibit their faith in God, to prove their hope of heaven is genuine, and to adorn their confidence in the promises of God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. It was a good church. And so I use this as our final exhortation. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he wrote to this very good church, and I think our church qualifies. And he said, and I say now to us, Finally, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. I thank you for the remarkable life of the Apostle Paul. And Father, I certainly fall far short of the kind of life that he lived, but thank you that you are working through me by your Spirit to fulfill the plan that you had for me. Help me to be more and more obedient to that. And then, Father, I know I'm talking to a people who truly, really want to do your will. And Father, maybe there is someone here that is been, has been grumbling a lot or is just having a struggle with their faith, who, but they're Christians. I pray that you will help them and encourage them and let them know that all of us, all of us are being used by you for an eternal purpose for which we will all be rewarded. And then Father, I also I pray for any who are here or watching online who have never made that commitment to Jesus Christ. We have to believe. It is by grace. Uh, we have to exercise the faith that he'll give us. All we have to do is turn to, to God and say, Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I want to live for Jesus. Help me to do that. And he will. And then we become part of a local church as, uh, such as this one and many other great ones around, surrounding us and around the world. And we be, we're discipled and grow and learn and tell others about Jesus. Father, help us to live the, with the joy that the very persecuted Apostle Paul had, even in prison. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.